Looking back at some of the other honors, there's the We Met Caddy Scholarship Fund. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that Caddy Fund was organized in 1949, and uh, it has been a source of great satisfaction to me. There's no story that could ever be told that is richer or sweeter than the story of Francis and Eddie. And may your lives be full of birdies and eagles. Hello and welcome to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. On today's episode, we welcome on Don Hearn, Executive Director of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of New England, and a close partner and friend to the We Met Fund. Don has spent his entire life and career devoted to the game he fell in love with at nine years old, when he began caddying for his father at Woburn Country Club. From a young age, Don knew he liked being on and around the golf course, and spent his teenage summers at Woburn Country Club in the pro shop, caddying, and working on the course for the superintendent. Don took to working with the superintendent team, and continued in the field by graduating from the famous Stockbridge Agricultural School at UMass Amherst. Throughout his impressive career, Don spent nearly 40 years working at several top courses in Massachusetts, including Weston Golf Club, Lexington Golf Club, and Vesper Country Club. While still working day-to-day as a head superintendent in Massachusetts, Don was elected president of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of New England in 1984, and in 2004 was awarded the organization's Distinguished Service Award. His career growth expanded further in 1987, as Don was elected president of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, a nationwide organization leading their field. Among his many achievements in this role, Don led the organization in revamping its certification process and program, which to this day remains the mark of top superintendents throughout the country. He also excelled in the industry through service and leadership, having served as a member of the USGA Green Section Committee and the Massachusetts Golf Association's Executive Committee. Don has, and continues to, leave his mark on the industry. However, you won't find a more kind or humble man. Known to those close to him for his quick wit, he is widely respected by his peers and continues to lead the Golf Course Superintendents Association of New England, especially in pushing for additional recognition of the hard work of the superintendent teams at courses throughout the region. We are very grateful to Don for his time and his partnership, and we hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you for listening. So, Don, are you in Massachusetts now just for the season? Are you going to be here for a while? I'll be back tomorrow. Oh, where are you now? Well, I'm in California, but that's a secret. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. State secrets. That's a well-guarded secret. That and the location of the gold, I guess, is backing up our dollar bills. <laughs> I kind of value my location. You'll be in Massachusetts starting late April, and then you're here all the way, what, through the end of the season? Yeah, usually I'm here until the middle of December. I leave after our December meeting, then I come back for our annual meeting, which is usually the first week in January. Then I come back out, then I go to our national conference, wherever that might be. Then I go back in March for the Providence Show. Okay. Then I come back to California. Then I go to Lawrence, Kansas, where our national headquarters is. I usually go there oh, wow. each March, kind of a tune-up and tune-in. Traveling nonstop, Don. Well, I know, but I enjoy it. Sometimes it gets you down, but I don't want to make it sound blasé or, oh, what a pain in the neck. It still creates some excitement. Get to go to some fun places, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, you do. And I just have to guard against being a cynic all the time. <laughs> like, you know, I've been there. I know how the magic trick is played. Therefore, I poo-poo a lot of things. I have to still maintain my excitement because, like all of us, we can learn something pretty much every day. That's right. Hopefully, there's some things we learn to put to good use rather than just <laughs> putting in the I hope I forget them box. 
Speaking of excitement, Don, we're excited to have you on the show today, especially as the season really gets underway here in New England. We can't thank you enough for your time to talk with us here today. And we know how modest you are about your stature in the industry, Don, but your resume and the work you've done in and on the golf course over the last 60 years, it really is second to none. So it'll be great to hear about your career as well as your perspective on the role and importance of the superintendent and their teams at golf courses throughout the state and country. However, as we like to do with all our guests, Don, we're curious about how you first came to the game of golf. When do you remember first being on a course and what was your introduction to the game? It's kind of crazy how certain things have stuck out in my mind. And maybe it's the same for everybody that's on this planet. But I have this vision. It's indelibly imprinted in my mind. And it's never been portrayed in my mind differently. My father, he was an avid golfer in Woburn, played with all the Doherty's who grew up together, etc. And I remember I was an eight-year-old kid. I was walking from the seventh green to the eighth tee, just tagging along with my dad. I had no idea how heavy a golf bag was. Why would I? I never picked one up. I was just a little kid. So he turned to me, he says, hey, he says, you want to carry the bag? Want to carry a caddy for a little while? I said, sure. He put the bag on my shoulder. I almost fell to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) You got to be kidding me. Of course, I didn't say that, but I'm mentally thinking that. And I'm hoping like heck that he realizes how heavy this is and what a burden this is going to be for me. And there's no way I'm going to climb the hill to the eighth (laughs) day. And it was kind of a joke thinking back about it. He says, yeah, he says, let me take that for you. (laughs) And then as time went on, I found out that obviously in addition to my dad, his brother, my uncle Dick, he played golf. And my father's father, my grandfather, who I barely remember, he was a big golfer in the city of Woburn. So I came from kind of a lineage of golfers, not good golfers, just (laughs) recreational golfers who had a great time. Yeah, I mean, your friend Dick Conley was our first guest on this podcast. Yeah. Woburn Country Club came up an awful lot, Ernie Doherty. Yeah. It just seems like hearing you talk about it in a similar way, the atmosphere at Woburn Country Club with these local kids who were there playing, working, essentially growing up at Woburn Country Club, did it feel that the membership, the players there, they were an extension of your own family. Yeah, they really were. And I didn't look at it that way. I don't know know exactly how I looked at it. I'm trying to like relive some of my earlier years. And obviously my memory is not as good as it, (laughs) as I think it was at one time, but maybe it was never any good. But regardless, I just looked at, it was a group of people that I always judge as being my father's age. So obviously I looked at virtually all of them as being fatherly type figures. They were all part of one big family who had one heck of a lot of fun at Woburn Country Club. <laughs> Again, I was just a little kid. They put up with me. I was kind of like put over in the corner, but I was waiting for a ride home at the end of the day from, <laughs> from Ernie or somebody that lived in the neighborhood. If I get off track here, bring me back. But I remember I would get nervous later in the day because as the day progressed, particularly on the weekends, they're having more and more fun. Yeah. I'm having less and less fun because I'm worried about getting home. Getting home. <laughs> yeah. And what really bothered me is at that time, Woburn Country Club was surrounded by woods and then it became conservation areas, et cetera. Well, when I would have to walk home, I would literally run through the woods because I was imagining all kinds of monsters and creatures and <laughs> goblins and, and all kinds of creatures coming out after me. So that used to scare the living heck out of me. But anyhow, that was my biggest fear was how the heck I was going to get home that night. Sometimes I'd reach a point where I knew that I was the last thing of consequence that they were thinking about. <laughs> I would have to make that decision to get my running shoes on, so to speak, 
and head for the woods and run <laughs> through. And I'd see that there was a big street light by the pumping station at Hon Pond. And when I saw that street light, I figured I was home. <laughs> you were safe. And I had another mile or so to go, but <laughs> mentally I was home. I was literally out of the woods. <laughs> I, I said to myself, wow, I lived to enjoy another day. <laughs> that's somewhat dramatic, but that's the way I remember it. Later on, as a teenager, you did basically every job a teenager could have at Woburn Country Club. You worked for the superintendent crew, you caddied, you worked in the pro shop, et cetera. Do you remember a certain job kind of piquing your interest most, even from a young age? Were there any employees or members at Woburn who kind of took you under their wing? Well, other than Ernie, Ernie Doherty, there was no one that really took me under their wing, but there were certain people that I enjoyed more. There was a gentleman, Frank Nevin was his name, just a, a wonderful, wonderful human being. And anytime anybody saw Frank coming, he was one of those fellows that always had a smile on his face. His disposition always seemed to be even-headed, just a wonderful person to be around. And anytime that he came, he would take me as a caddy or... If I wasn't around, or even if I was around, if there was somebody else that hadn't been out in a while, he'd take that person as a caddy. He's just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And I just don't know why, other than obviously his ability to relate to me. Now, maybe he didn't relate to other people and the kids my age like he did to me, but he's always stood out in my mind as being a person that I enjoyed seeing coming up the steps, so to speak, to Wilbur Country Club. You started out, I guess, eight, nine-year-old caddy. Yeah. And then a bunch of other positions there, again, continuing caddying. But you got into the superintendent staff. And so when did the love of working the turf, the grounds, the day-to-day of being on that team grab you and put you in the direction that you went in life? Like You eventually attended UMass Stockbridge, one of the top agricultural schools in the country. But what led you to initially go in that direction and apply there? I can't think of any one or two particular things that uh, could answer that question. Obviously, I'm going to blank out on some of my days of history, so to speak. But I remember that when Ernie Doherty had the contract to run Wuben Country Club, I used to work in the golf shop during the summer. And then in the spring and the fall, I'd work out on the course as much as I could because I was still going to school. I wasn't a great student. I really didn't care for school. You know, I was hoping that somehow through a hocus pocus or a magic trick or something, that you could only go 11 years and then you'd graduate as a, you know, as a full-grown <laughs> student, so to speak. But that never happened. It was still 12 years of school. And one time I worked for my uncle who owned a couple of restaurants. And I, it was probably just because of the process of where I was working. I thought I wanted to become a chef. And I got a little bit serious in that I contacted the Culinary Institute of America down in Hyde Park, New York, I believe was their location, and got a lot of their information and the brochures and going to school. And I kind of set my mind on doing that. And then I don't really know what it was. I can't think of anything in particular that dimmed that switch. And it brightened the switch associated with the country club, with the golf course. And by working on the golf course in the spring and the fall, I tend to gravitate more toward that. I like that more. Now, specifically why, I can't identify that, but it might have been the subconscious desire at one time to be a golf pro. And most of us probably growing up at one time thought we'd like to do that. And then we realized, you know, we're kidding everybody, including ourselves. (laughs) I didn't consciously recognize that happening at a certain time. And I think it was probably like more by osmosis. The more I worked out in the golf course, the more osmotically that kind of environment got into my system and into my mind. And I really enjoyed doing it. 
And of course, I worked with Dickie Conley and I worked with his brother, Bob, who was one of my dearest friends. And there was one thing that stood out in my mind. I remember walking into the maintenance facility at, at Wuben Country Club and on the desk was this issue of, I think it was called the Golf Superintendent or the Golf Course Superintendent magazine back then. Now it's Golf Course Management. But anyhow, I read the article. I think it had something to do with either benefits or pension plans for superintendents. And I have no idea, you know, why that appealed to me. And I think it was probably more who was involved in the article. It was Sherwood Moore at Wingfoot. So that's probably what captured my mind. And then I realized that there was this publication that came out every month. I don't know if Bobby got it or Dickie got it or where it came from, but it was on the desk and it piqued my interest. And I read it cover to cover and I started getting this feeling of, wow, this is kind of an interesting profession, but I didn't look at it as a profession. I just looked at it as a place to work and a place of enjoyment, something that I liked to do. And I really wasn't conscious of being a person that wanted to work with his hands or didn't want to work with his hands. I know I didn't want to work a lot with my mind. (laughs) And I'm sure my school grades would bear that out. But anyhow, I was probably just kind of adrift. And then I really got motivated to learn more about the industry that I was becoming a part of. You mentioned 1968 was when you joined. Now, would that have been when you first became a full-time superintendent or were you working part-time while you were still at UMass? What was your initial job in that 1968 timeframe? Well, first of all, as far as UMass, I went to the winter school. Oh, that's what it was called, the winter school. Winter school, okay. And it was a 10-week program for people who were already in the industry. And like I say, I, I, I had an aversion to becoming educated because I obviously <laughs> I thought I knew everything. What was I doing? Wasting my time going to a college or a university of higher learning. But anyhow, I realized that if you were going to get anywhere in this business, you had to have the UMass imprimatur kind of backing you up. So I really wasn't interested in just going and devoting two years of my time because at that time, that was it. If you had an associate's degree from Stockbridge, you were king of the pile, so to speak. But that just wasn't interesting me. So I applied for the winter school. It was extremely hard to get into, which I didn't realize at the time. I was rejected the first year. And then I made some inquiries and I found out that it would be helpful if I knew someone of some import to help me on my venture. Put in a good word for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, they did that in the second year, second time around, I got there. And I was really happy that I did. I enjoyed it. Many of the people that I went to school with, it was probably, I'm guessing there were maybe, I don't know if it was 25 or 50 of us in the class, but they were from all over the country. I had a great time and it broadened my knowledge, number one, uh, the basic knowledge that I should have. It broadened that and it made me become more aware of the universe that I was getting myself into. And every day I was getting more and more interested and I would talk to people in the industry, sales representatives, superintendents, and ask them questions that in retrospect were kind of juvenile when I remember some of the questions that I asked, but I wasn't treated that way. And I think it was probably as much fun for somebody listening to my questions as it was for me getting the answers back. And I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed meeting people in our industry some people that were considered legends, Al Radko. When I mention Al Radko, most people don't know who Al Radko was, but he was the director of the green section, USGA's green section. And I remember one day I was at the UMass conference, which was held every March. And I was at the USGA conference and I was walking through the dining area and Arthur Anderson, who was a longtime superintendent at Braeburn, he said, hey, Don, Don, come over here, come over here. 
and he introduced me to two of the agronomists from the USGA. And wow, I said, holy mackerel, I've died and went to heaven, so to speak, just being associated with these people. And now where those people are gone, most of them have passed away. But anyhow, he was just, for me, a young guy, a kid, so to speak, who thought he knew everything, meeting people who did know everything and being treated like an equal, which I wasn't. I had no aspirations to be because I never thought that I would reach that level. But I was just absorbed by the business and couldn't get enough of it. And then when I graduated from the winter school, actually by coincidence, Dickie Conley, I grew up calling him Dickie. Dick Conley was talking to a fellow named Ted Murphy. Uh, Ted Murphy grew up in the south end of Woburn, where I grew up. Ted was a little bit older than me. We knew of each other, but we never really saw each other. Or if it was, it was just in passing somewhere in Woburn. So they were talking and Teddy needed an assistant at Lexington. So Dick mentioned my name and ended up going over Teddy's house, meeting Mary, his wife, Murphy, who grew up in Central Square area of Woburn. And we hit it off and I became the assistant at Lexington where Teddy was the superintendent for a couple of years. And then Teddy left, I think it was 1970, and he bought Garrison Golf Center up in Haverhill. And he's become legendary up in that area. So anyhow, I worked for Teddy. And then when Ted left, I was fortunate enough to get the job as a superintendent. Time went by. And just by chance, I happened to see a member of Weston. I was up at Sears Roebuck in Burlington. He was at the counter waiting to pick up an order. And he told me that Phil Cassidy, who was the superintendent at the time, was retiring at the end of that year and the position would be open. And I yeah, fat chance I have. But anyhow, he encouraged me to put an application in, send my resume and information in, which I did. And then I answered a few questions and the committee came out and they toured the golf course, asked a few more questions, got invited to the interview. Long story short, I ended up getting the job, thought I died and went to heaven. Never thought I'd be in a place like that. I'd like to touch a little bit on your first role at Lexington. But again, you just mentioned a few giants in the game, some legends. And to us, you're a legendary local and national career in the industry. And you're humble. So Thomas and I'll do the bragging for you like so many of your peers do. <laughs> Before Lexington, you were at UMass, but that first role, what were some of the goals as you set out to say, okay, these are my first goals, my first job. Was it to prove yourself to the membership and others in the industry? Like, Talk us through the mindset you had in that first job coming out of school. Well, obviously I was anxious and I was nervous, but I was probably somewhat brash too because I thought that I had the talent and the skill and I definitely had the motivation and the desire to produce what I thought would be a, a great condition golf course. And back then, great conditions were nowhere near today's conditions. It's all, all relative, as we know. We were mowing greens back then at a quarter of an inch. At five sixteenths, many those who were down a quarter of an inch and then down to three sixteenths of an inch were living life on a high wire, so to speak. But my goal every day was to produce the turf, if I could, better than the day before. Actually, that was driving me with blinders because I wasn't looking at the bigger picture, which I should have been. And I did look at and become more responsible for as time went on. Then I realized that what I was doing has to be coupled with taking care of our environment. But anyhow, my goal was to produce high-quality golf turf so that people would go, wow, this place is beautiful. And I thought initially that I would be recognized for that. But little did I know, being naive back then, and still somewhat naive, that it really didn't matter who was producing it. All that mattered is that it was being produced to the level that, at least generally speaking, to the satisfaction of the membership. 
And I must have been doing something right because those who were judging me to do something similar to what I was doing at their particular club, and in this case, Weston, they decided that I was doing a pretty good job too. Well, and Don, you clearly had an extremely successful start to your career, did very well at Lexington, then moved on to Weston. And again, we'll get into a few more questions just regarding the industry and your roles. But just for background, you, again, clearly were very successful. You became the president of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of New England in 1984, president of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America in 1987, and then received the Distinguished Service Awards from both organizations in 2004 and 2007, respectively. So you've obviously seen and been a part of important efforts locally and nationally, and we'll get into more of that. But staying on the theme of that beginning of your career, now looking back 50 odd years to the beginning, what would you give some tips to new superintendents now who are just beginning their careers? Are there certain milestones to check off in that first season in the way that golf clubs and courses and maintenance has changed in those 50 years? Yes. To me, one of the most important things, and I've said this a number of times to other people in discussions, back then we didn't have the technology available to find out things. We can imagine something right now and press a button on the computer and get the answer to it. The biggest thing that I would do is to find out who the people are that I'd be working with or I'd be working for. What are their backgrounds? Where do they grow up? Where do they go to school? So that not so much being a busybody type interest, but try to get a sense and a feel for where people are coming from. After that, is just trying to find out what is it that the club, because we all hear, you know, oh, the club likes this, the club doesn't like that, the members like this, the members don't like that, or our golf clientele likes this or doesn't like that. Well, who is it that doesn't like this and doesn't like that? In most cases, it's the low handicap golfer. It just is. And that's what drives our business. And in one regard, the low handicap golfer has made golf conditioning like almost out of this world. And I know this is probably going to sound a little bit crude, but golf is a selfish sport. And to get better, you're counting on yourself to get better. Maybe some people will count on a teacher, but I know myself, I never took a golf lesson other than Ernie Doherty taking a look at my swing and say, hey, roll over your right wrist going through a little bit more. That was a two and a half minute lesson, if you want to call it a lesson. So we grew up in a different environment, but it's all about me and keeping me happy Well, the me is unfortunately what drives, I think, the conditioning of golf courses. Not that it's right, not that it's absolutely wrong, but it is what we have to deal with. And it's hard from a club's perspective as a superintendent to try to keep three or 400 me's in that example happy. That's a difficult job, Don. Right. And what happens, unfortunately, from my perspective, is most of the me's, I mean, what's the average handicap? 16, 16 and change, something like that. I think it's been that for like 100 years. I just bumped it up, so. (laughs) Oh, all right. Okay. All right. But seriously, most of the me's look to those individual me's for guidance and leadership because they say, well, they must be right. So-and-so is a plus one or so-and-so is a two or so-and-so just won the club championship or so-and-so is a member at XYZ. And they look at those people in awe and say, well, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. What do I know? I'm a 22 handicap. So that person must be right because they know because they're the club champ. But you have spent those 40 plus years actually on the course, and obviously you spent nearly 60 years in and around the industry. And throughout your career, you were heavily involved in the regional and national superintendents associations. You know, again, in the 1980s, 
you spent years as the president of both the Superintendent Association of New England and then of America. And looking back on those times, both you're still involved with those associations, but especially when you were president, what were some of the most important efforts you were involved with throughout those years? And I think we'd specifically love to hear you talk about the certification program that was totally revamped during your time. For those who don't know, like what was the impetus behind that certification program and what does it mean for a superintendent to be certified? Well, I have to give credit where credit is due, and and I've said this time and time again. The brains behind, at that time, the new certification program, because the program did exist, but obviously not in that form, was a fellow named Jim Prusa. Jim Prusa was a golf course superintendent, grew up in the business. His dad was a superintendent, and then Jim became a member of the staff at the management team at GCSAA. Jim is a blue sky thinker. In 12 seconds, he'll come up with 10 ideas on any subject that you want to mention. Eight of them are absolutely out of this world. People from Mars wouldn't even undertake them. The other two, we would seriously consider. And I would walk away and say, Jesus, how the heck did he come up with those ideas? So anyhow, Jim said he wanted to run with the certification program. And knowing a little bit about Jim at that time, and knowing about my limitations, I says, absolutely, go for it. (laughs) So he came up with this plan. Him and I talked it over. I depended more on him, but he depended more on me to shepherd it through the process and kind of vet it out amongst the board members and the certification committee so that we can make it not, well, somewhat less idealistic, but a lot more practical. That became the new certification program. And at one time, and I think still to this day, the goal was to have 20% of eligible superintendents become certified. They felt that that was the right number. I don't remember what that 20% was based on, maybe Other professions that have certification, maybe 20% is the standard rate. But it's right around there even to today. And then originally you had to go through a lengthy testing process. And you had to have a proctor right there. In fact, we had a fellow come down to Golf House and take the exam at Golf House, and I was proctor. So actually, once you did that, I think there were five levels of testing. And once you concluded all five, and then you'd have two certified superintendents that would come out and visit your golf course. And we would ask questions. We would view the facility to make sure that someone would be, quote, a legitimate certified superintendent. And hopefully that when people saw that facility, particularly other superintendents, they would realize that there's something different. And that's something different. We could try to tie that to certification to make the program more valuable. It's probably like any program that some people are going to poo-poo it. Ah, you don't have to be certified to be successful. They're absolutely right. And there's other people that if you offer a program, they're not going to feel satisfied unless they take advantage of that program for a multitude of reasons. Some because it will give the people that they're working with or working for a better sense of the qualifications and the ability of that person to do the job. And also for the person himself or herself to feel much more qualified to do the job, give themselves more confidence, give them kind of a badge of honor and help them provide quality conditions for golfers that want to play on quality conditions, obviously. But anyhow, certification was something as soon as I was eligible, I became certified in 1977 and I retired as a certified superintendent. So obviously I've been a big booster of the program and would have been even if I wasn't on the board of GCSAA or associated with GCSA&E, I would have still, I think I would have undertaken the process to become certified. I've always taken great pride in that. And us as certified superintendents, even though none of us have expressed this to each other, I think we think there's a little bit of a bond between us because 
we know what the other person did to get to that level. Mm. Yeah, Donna, you've told me a lot of stories. I hadn't heard that piece, so I appreciate the understanding of that certification. Regardless, you mentioned experience, you talk about qualifications. So you're not a practicing superintendent today, 2023, but even after Vesper, you stayed active with the association. How did that transition happen where one day you're waking up, getting a course ready every day to then eventually becoming the employee, helping to advance the membership and the best practices for all the members of your association, if you can. What's that story behind you accepting the role of executive director of GCSA of New England? Well, again, I always continued going to the meetings, even when I was no longer a superintendent. And one day I said to, I forget exactly who it was, but whoever the president was at that time, I said, if Sharon, my predecessor was Sharon Brownell. Right, yeah. Sharon worked for Mass Golf, MGA, Mass Golf Association, for a number of years. So many of us knew of Sharon and knew who she was personally, because I used to go down to the MGA way back when, when they were located over in Weston. MGA and we met, we were in the same building, and then they moved down to Needham. So I'd go over there all the time. And I was on the MGA's executive committee for a while as ex officio with the We Met. So I was always over there and around, so I'd see Sharon. So I knew Sharon quite well and enjoyed her company and liked what she did. But I said to the fellows at one of the meetings, that said, if Sharon ever decides to leave, I said, I'd really be interested in taking that position. So they said, yeah, that's great. We'll keep you in mind. No more than one, maybe two months later, I get a call saying that Sharon was retiring. She was leaving because she wanted to do other things. I said, holy mackerel. I said, that's great. And they said that Mike Stakowitz was the chair of the selection committee. He says, Mike will be getting in touch with you to set up interviews because he's setting up interviews now. I said, interviews? (laughs) Interviews for what? I says, I'm your person. (laughs) I'm right here. I'm at your doorstep. They said, no, no, no. We're going to do a search. I said, oh, okay, fine. So to this day, I honestly, I have no idea who else applied for the job. No one volunteered. I never asked. Didn't matter. And I didn't want anything to color my opinions going forward. If I heard something from somebody, I said, oh, uh, the person's kind of sour grapes because they didn't get the job. I have no idea who it was. And here you are now, Don, over 10 years since you've been hired. And you, I believe, are still the first and only full-time employee of yeah. G-Sane, which is obviously incredibly impressive. And I know that the Golf Course Superintendents Association of New England is celebrating its 100th anniversary next year. Yeah. Which, congratulations, right. and that's very exciting. And I know you've been hard at work on a 100th anniversary book to celebrate that milestone. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of capturing that history and the stories from the people who have been really closely involved with your organization in regards to that upcoming book? What kind of goes into a project like that and who is involved in that? Well, a lot more is going into it than I thought. (laughs) And I have to admit, when I was growing up, getting into the age that I'm at now, I didn't really think about or care about the history of anything. And now the older I get, I realize there's fewer of me around to tell the story and to know people that were part of the 100 years. Now, obviously, <laughs> I don't go back to the full 100 years, but I go back quite a ways with past presidents and remembering some stories to the point where people will say, holy mackerel, I didn't realize that. They thought that what's happening now was the way it happened for 100 years, which it hasn't, obviously. But anyhow, Gary Larrabee, he's the author of the book, and him and I have spent a lot of time back and forth on the phone and swapping stories and also educating him on some of the intricacies and kind of like what's behind the screen with golf course superintendents, because he's never written anything. I mean, he's written about superintendents, but he's not ever obviously produced a book about superintendents and the history of the industry 
and how far we've progressed. Because obviously most of us think in our lifetime, this is what's happened in our lifetime, not in the lifetime of an agency, a group, or an industry. So fortunately, I've lived long enough and come across many of some of the beginnings of our, well, not, not obviously not the beginnings, but some of the earlier days of our association where I can relate from a firsthand experience what those have been. And Gary's interviewed, I believe he's interviewed all but one of our living past presidents. And we're trying to gather information now from families, superintendents who have had family members in our industry. And we've had a few people get back to us, but there's many, many more who haven't, at least yet, that have fathers, brothers, grandfathers, that have been superintendents, golf professionals, salespeople, on and on and on, industry representatives of some sort. And those by themselves could tell a huge story about how people got interested in becoming golf course superintendents. We're also looking at what I think of the improvements in the equipment by leaps and bounds. Yeah, I mean, Don, just want to tie in the awareness piece there and the relationships that you were referencing before that. I've always been impressed with the relationships, the camaraderie that happens within your organization for superintendents locally and nationally to help each other out. It's a tight bond. And you and I have talked about the tough time, whether it's COVID, big leaders with COVID, essential workers. You've got droughts six or seven years ago that were off the charts. Someone like Pat Daly at Framingham Country Club, everything burns to the ground. But there's also, if we can focus on a real positive where people are coming together, the U.S. Open coming to the country club in 2022. But it started long before June. You were in some of those meetings, years out, months out, weeks out, 4 a.m. day of the championship. Can you just walk us through what you saw from your role as executive director and working with the head of grounds over at the country club, Dave Johnson? Yeah, I've known Dave, I don't know for how many years, but quite a few, and always admired his ability to handle things in a very calm, cool, collected way, very humble individual, and has maintained that humility. And, you know, what I've seen is, well, I've traveled over the years to a lot of sites of major championships, so I've, I've seen a lot of things, and of course, there's a lot of things I haven't seen too, but I feel I have some sense of what I'm talking about when it comes to these type things, and the work started over at the country club under the auspices of Bill Spence. Bill was there for 30 plus years, another good friend of mine. And then Bill retired, was still, I believe, is still active to a certain extent over at the country club. And then Dave came in and things really started moving along hot and heavy, so to speak. And a lot of the work and the construction that people saw, the end result that people saw during the tournament was accomplished during the time that Dave was there. And what I saw was the people that came, and I tried to get there at 3 a.m. every morning. And my mind told my body that you could do it. And uh, of course, some people have questioned my mind all these years, and this proves it. <laughs> my mind told my body the wrong things. <laughs> and I remember the first day, I stayed till maybe 8.30 and 9 o'clock. I was tired driving home, but I was still energetic. And I was still, I can't think of the word right now, but my emotions were driving me rather than my mind. So the next day I got up at, I don't know, two o'clock, whatever time it was, off to the country club I was. I got there probably 3.15. And I was just amazed that everybody was already there waiting for instructions. And I was just blown away by this. But I was still very enthusiastic, full of vim and vigor. And my role wasn't one of being involved in the maintenance of the golf course. My role was there to represent our association, to see our members 
to try to meet other people, to engage with other people, other superintendents, assistants from other parts of the country, and just interested people. And one fellow, Tim Powers, I mean, I've known Tim for a long, long time. Timmy came from San Francisco. I said, gee, where's Timmy? You come all the way from San Francisco? He says, absolutely. And then in October, the country club had, which was a very nice thing, they had an appreciation day for all the volunteers. And they invited everybody that was a volunteer during the tournament to come and play. Who showed up? Timmy Powers from San Francisco. I said, you've come all this way to play? He says, yeah. He says, I came all this way to work and I certainly wasn't going to not come back and play on the place that I put a lot of effort into. (laughs) So anyhow, they ended up, I believe, could have this a little bit wrong, but I think they ended up with people from five or six countries from Europe. And I think 19 or 20 of our states were represented by volunteers. That's amazing. And women, which are a bigger part of our industry, I think there was maybe a dozen women from around the country. And there was one husband and wife team. It was exciting meeting those people. And then I met Matt Smith. Matt Smith is a Shinnecock Indian. And his grandfather, I met when Bobby Conley and I went to Shinnecock back in the had to be late 60s, early 70s. I believe it's when the Walker Cup was being played there. And we met this beautiful, beautiful man, unassuming guy. And his name was Elmer Smith. We just happened to be late one afternoon going by the maintenance facility. We see this fellow. Everything's locked up. This guy's like walking out the door to put the last lock on the door, so to speak. And we asked, are you the superintendent? He said, yeah. Introduced himself, Elmer Smith. So anyhow, I won't tell you the rest of that story, but his son became the superintendent at Shinnecock, Peter. And then Matt is Elmer's grandson. And Matt is the fellow that I met at the country club, told him some of the story that I'm telling you, actually more of the story that I'm telling you. And then I met Matt's father, who was visiting the country club for the tournament, whose brother was Elmer Smith, the superintendent. And that was a great relationship. And we've swapped a couple of emails and he's going to be working at Los Angeles Country Club for the Open this year. Nice, nice fellow. It's amazing because you can hear that, first of all, we know about everything that, well, we don't know everything, but we were aware of some of what went into the maintenance and planning and strategy behind the building of that course. A hundred plus volunteers, like you're saying, from all over the world. But the passion that you have in your voice is more for the people that you were able to meet, the relationships you were able to create. And I think that's really awesome. And as Colin was noting, there really is a lot of camaraderie in your industry. Again, were all of those volunteers and all of you, you yourself and others that you spoke with, Really proud and excited to see the USGA recognize Dave and his team with that EJ Marshall Award to recognize what happened that week on that course and and all the work that went into it, which was years in the making. That was huge. And Mike Wan, obviously I've gotten to know who he is more and more through his town meetings with the USGA. And I did follow him a little bit when he was with the LPGA, but I really didn't know a lot about Mike. But through the grapevine, I knew that at least the people that I was talking to, that he was maybe a little bit of a different individual in a positive way that was going to take the reins of the USGA. So I communicated with him about a few things relative to superintendents, US Open, recognition and what have you. But I had no clue, no inkling whatsoever that this was going to happen. And that did more, I think, for our golf course superintendents recognition in the profession than anything I can think of as far as the general public who play and watch and are interested in golf has been done. That to me was the ultimate. Now, whether it's something that they're going to do every year or something they're going to do when something that they feel special has to be recognized, I don't know what the answer to that is. 
Maybe we'll know more after the Open this year. But that was great. I mean, Dave had no idea. Obviously, the inside is new, but they had to keep this under wraps. They did a magnificent job. The people were duly recognized. Some people weren't recognized as much as they should be. That's always going to be the case as long as we're human beings living on this planet. But we try to get people recognized for what they did. And Dave being Dave and having the humility that he does, he didn't take it upon himself as being, wow, woe is me. Without me, this wouldn't have happened. He gave the credit to all the people that were working and part of that team to put together that finished product, which I, spending two weeks there, and of course I came in at the tail end of the construction that was going on and the last minute preparations, but I was blown away by all that took place behind the scenes there. Because the country club, I had been there many times in the past for various things, so I knew the lay of the land, so to speak, and I saw how it was changed because of tents and temporary roads and temporary accesses and it was and amazing security plans and it was just it was incredible yeah. and like i say i get there between three and three thirty in the morning the place was a buzz i mean <laughs> they've got generators and lights and it's like 128 128 out there <laughs> going up and down the maintenance roads out there it was crazy it was great and dave johnson's been part of the we met board over the years and just a great guy getting to know him at wiano and, and at the country club so oh yeah Don, I mean, these are amazing stories, amazing relationships. I'm really looking forward to reading the book and appreciate you looking for some We Met related stats for the book. And as I told you, we're just so proud to partner with the association with you personally since the We Met Fund expanded eligibility beyond caddies back in 1983. I mean, there's been over 600 young men and women that have worked on the crews of superintendents in Massachusetts. They haven't all gone on to be superintendents, but you've changed 600 lives with those jobs. So we're just so thrilled with that history component. As we wrap up here, what do you get excited about that you see for the next few years for golf in your industry? Well, this might be a little not what you're looking for, but I'm obviously keyed into robotics. I just saw a video, actually I saw one earlier, but this one is actually doing the work, where they're spraying rough areas now, commonly referred to as fescue, the fescue areas, with drones to keep the equipment out of there and away from matting the areas down. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, they're flying the drone, obviously not much water with the product, micro applications. And that's going to be the wave of the future. It just, it is. We have robotic mowers now that are mowing areas around mowing practice facilities, practice ranges, around clubhouses. They're robotic greens mowers. They've been taken off the market, but they were out there for a couple of years, so they will be improved and they'll be back. There's robotic fairway units. The limiting issue with them right now seems to be not the technology, but seems to be the cost because of the technology. But robotics, they're here. They're here. That's amazing. The certification might have to be adjusted slightly, factoring all that in, right? Well, there's going to be more and more technology that's going to be in a different vein than the technology now. It's going to be maybe less mechanical, and maybe we'll have a technology person on board at our clubs. The other side of that coin is people say, yeah, but that's going to cut jobs. And the other side of that coin is, well, no, it might create more jobs in a different field, but Mm -hmm. still related. Right to golf courses, and things might happen that we don't even think of right now, that five years down the road, when I think of it, if somebody said to me 25 years ago, Don, you're going to be able to control your irrigation system through a phone. (laughs) I'd say, yeah, right. And I'm going to be an astronaut a week later, too. But look, we're doing this with our phone. We're doing thermostats at our home from any place in the world where you've you've got access. 
You can turn the heat and the air conditioning on in your house. All this stuff. I, I would never in my wildest dream have thought that irrigation systems would be as sophisticated as they are now. It's just neither would I have thought that the equipment would be as sophisticated as it is now. Well, we're excited to see what the next few years bring for your industry. And I know you'll continue to be a great leader in that industry. And I speak for Colin and certainly the We Met Fund, but golfers in Massachusetts, we're lucky to have you guys and you guys do a phenomenal job. And thank you very much for the work that you do. And as you've noted, you continue to deserve more and more recognition. So thank you very much to you and your, your fellow superintendents as well. And Don, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us today. We're looking forward to reading that 100th anniversary book. Well, thanks very much. I enjoyed it. The time has gone by quickly. Thanks to you and your questions. And I enjoyed it and had a great time. And hopefully you did too. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Don. We'll see you around the office. Yep. Yeah.